This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Super excited to have with me Heidi Longbein-Allen whose new book, uh, Save the Last Bullet, Memoir of a Boy Soldier in Hitler's Army, uh, has recently been published. Heidi was raised in Germany, France, and Spain, and lives in the USA. Uh, She wrote her father's memoirs from his taped recollections and records of the interviews. So super, super excited to jump right into this book. Heidi, how are you today? I am doing fine, AJ. How are you? I'm wonderful. Um, thanks so much for uh, for joining me. Um, really liked this uh, this book a lot. And actually, on the the cover of the book, so your name is on it, but also you credit your father as the co-author. Um, correct. That's right. That's right. So I, I guess my first question then is, why was that important to you to to credit him on this work? Because it is his story and it is his memoir. So uh, I guess you could say that I technically ghost wrote uh, his memoir because I took it from 16 cassette tapes that he left for uh, my sister and myself. And then, you know, he, he put it on CDs and he sent them to us in 2007. And so I took really the, his story from, you know, in status as, you know, as as loyal to 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 his version uh, as possible, and then augmented it with interviews uh, with him to you know toward the end of his life. And, yeah, uh, I remember reading that in so a couple of years ago now, about a year and a half. So my father passed away, and um, one of the things that we have, thank you, uh, one of the things that we have is actually a recording of him putting together like a. Thanksgiving turkey recipe. And it's like two hours, but it's so cool to have that recording and to, to just, you know, hear the voice and to, to have that. And when I, I read that, that these conversations were taped and it, it made me think of that um, because of how, how special I think that recording of my dad is, I'm sure then those tapes are, are precious to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're invaluable. And especially because I bugged him, you know, his entire life to actually, tell his story, which, you know, he, he really didn't want to do as I think most soldiers uh, don't want to really talk about the what the war experience because it's very painful and, and in particular German soldiers. And of course, after yeah. World War II, so he was, he was really not um, willing or prepared until late in life. You know, when I finally just wore him down, uh, and I think as he recollected, you know, in his 70s after retirement um, about his life, I think he he did see the value in in telling his story, at least for the family. So um, sure. And that was the, the main intent. And so, so, he didn't so these really recordings expect me to, to write anything uh, publishable. <laughs> that sure. is. So these recordings. So how did they you guys just, you exchanged CDs then or what period of time did these recordings take place? And and also what made you finally want to, I mean, I know you said that you've been wanting for a long time, but what was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and like getting this recorded? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I sat on those tapes for a long time. So I, I felt like I finally had accomplished the mission of getting him to, to, to record his, his uh, recollections and his experiences. And it was really fascinating to listen to it. And this was back in 2007. My father was in his seventies. And, and then I, you know, put it away. I I put the CDs away after listening to them a couple of times. I thought, you know, this is wonderful. I will translate it one day for my, for my kids to, to be able to, to understand the history 
but there was no great sense of urgency. Uh, and, uh, and that changed. That all changed with, uh, you know, current events, really, with the geopolitical events unfolding in the last several years. And my father actually got uh, very concerned about uh, the turn of, you know, events and in particular the rise of nationalism and of extreme movements. And, and he had worked his entire life to to prevent that horrible uh, war and 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 what led up to it to to reoccur, and, and so he had dedicated his life to do this, and he was awarded actually the Medal of European Merit for his contributions to democracy, to the furtherment of democracy in Europe, uh, and he was very proud of that, and he got that in 1979, and he ended his career as the Head of NATO Legal Germany, and uh, he he feared that you know the work that he had done his whole life would be was 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 basically disintegrating in front of his eyes, and he was very very um, alarmed and and so that's when um, that propelled me. In fact, in 2016, uh, it propelled me to 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 pull out those tapes and to translate them for my family. But it was just for the family. I was gonna because my children don't speak uh, German, and and then long story short, uh, a colleague at work uh, who is a writer got wind of it in the conversation. He says, "Oh no, no, you have to publish this." And uh, you know, at first I thought he was really crazy. I'd never written in my life other than you know for business. And, the, and but he struck a chord. He struck a chord somewhere, and I realized, you know, maybe he was right, and maybe the story needed to be told, just to to remind people of the just devastating effects of 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 extremism and of authoritarian rule. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that because when I was reading this book, I was like, "Holy cow!" Like, you know, because it starts with your your father, uh, Willie. It starts, you know, at his his early childhood and. You know, it's like a normal family. You know, it's it's not it it it's it kind of you know national socialism was creeping up on them. Uh, I think at one point in your book, you talk about how at school one day, um, like one of Willie's textbooks has like this this paragraph about Adolf Hitler and like how like you know how he was going to like save the country. And I was like, I was just imagining. I was like, you know, what if like. I mean, it just, it, it seems like it's always to me seemed, I was born in 1992. I'm 30 years old. To me, it's always seemed like so impossible that this could ever happen. But now I think it's, it's like less impossible. And so reading your book, I, I thought about that a lot. Well, let's, let's, let's dive right in then to your father's story. And um, maybe first, just like, you know, talk about your your father as a boy. Uh, the town that this this we'll talk about where this takes place. Um, what year do we do we meet your father in in your book, and what was his childhood like? Yeah, my father was born in 1930 in uh, in Witten, Germany. That's in the uh, Nordrhein-Westfalen area, the northwestern part of the country, uh, close to the Netherlands, and uh, he. He was three when Hitler came to power right, in 1933. And so the book actually starts at uh, when he was age four uh, on the occasion of a golden anniversary of, uh, of his grandparents. And so it, I started the book there because, I, I, in fact, you touched on a very good point. It, 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 it shows the progression of, of the uh, slow manipulation uh, efforts that started around that time to, uh, in particular, influence uh, also the the younger population to indoctrinate them into the Nazi uh, regime and into the Nazi ideology. So they started very early on, and yes, they started changing, subtly changing the the, the textbooks in school uh, to change the narrative from you know church and and and. Parents to, uh, you know, the those uh, themes of fatherland and and blood and and soil and you know, Führer 
uh, you know, the leader and being sort of the, the only source of truth. So that, that just started seeping in. And they were, children were actually encouraged to tell on their parents, right? That's very much the informant kind of, you know, environment that, that, that you see in dictatorships. Uh, where people are encouraged to tell on each other, you know, and, uh, and you know, slowly but surely, uh, rule of fear and intimidation sets in. And what was, so like, what was his, um, what was his family like? Like, what were his parents like? What, what was his upbringing like? Yeah, so it's regular folks. Uh, my grandmother was from a large family of farmers. She was one of 12, uh, very rural my grandfather was more of a you know bourgeois merchant class if you will um so his father was a dry cleaners uh, and um he uh he actually elected to work for the government he worked for the railway german railways at the time the reichsbahn um and he was uh, basically uh you know a, a supervisor um, yeah and and to be clear they were not um they were not supporters of of the Nazis. It was not they a home just, where. Yeah, yeah, they were just regular folks, you know, pretty apolitical. However, because my grandfather was a government worker, because, you know, the railways were, you know, owned by the government, uh, he was at, at, at some point, and I can't remember the exact year, we'd have to look it up in the book, but he was forced to, well, he wasn't even forced, he was automatically enrolled in the Nazi party. It was yeah. just by default. And so that's one of the things that occurred, right? And, um, you know, and, and dissent became, of course, impossible or even disagreement because the first thing that would happen is folks would lose their jobs. And then they would lose their, uh, you know, their ability to get a new job and therefore, you know, their ability to, to feed their families. So that was typically the first thing that would happen, you know, and, sure. and of course. Now, what was the, the community like itself? Um, you write about a neighbor um, who was like a Nazi, and I'm sure there were there were many more. But like, what was the what was the community like in, in terms of politics? Was it? Did people mostly support the the Nazis? That's a good question. I think there were a lot of uh, what they call Mitläufer, uh, which is uh, one of those great German terms that are difficult to translate. So something like running with. Uh, so the, the 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 concept of it being that they they just went along and didn't question and didn't want to know. I think. Yeah. The majority of people fit into that category. Some were ardent supporters, no question, and some didn't agree at all, but didn't dare say anything. I think that's pretty much yeah. where well, people were. Yeah. Well, the you know the 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 real heart of the book is how your father he was in the Hitler Youth. He was forced into the Hitler Youth and and became a, a child soldier at the age of thirteen. But maybe let's talk a little bit about kind of leading up to that, because I learned a lot about just kind of like how that works, because you don't really hear about, you know, um, you know, forced removals from families or, you know, the buildup to like getting thrown into an organization like the Hitler Youth. But, you know, maybe start like what was like kind of the first thing with your father? What was what was the first event that... I think you might you might write at some point that children were required to join a certain political youth group, but just kind of talk about that progression. Yeah, so the the Hitler Youth was uh, was actually structured, you know, at for paramilitary training. Obviously, it was taken over actually by Hitler from uh, from other youth organizations, kind of like the Boy Scouts. That, that were just very popular in Germany. And so it became the Hitler Youth. Now, there was a precursor to the Hitler Youth. It, and so boys of age 10 were enrolled into, into Jungfolk, which was the precursor organization, from 10 to 14. Then from 14 to 18, they uh, were enrolled in the Hitler Youth. And from 18 on, they were uh, passed on directly to the army during the war. This... Allegedly, it was all voluntary. However, by the time my father turned nine years old in 1939, 
none of this was voluntary any longer, and uh, the enrollment in the Jungfolk at age 10 was mandatory. And so I think you're right, too, that, you know, much like, you know, a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old in an organization like the Boy Scouts, you know, your father, he thought it it was fun. You know, it was, it was not... It, talk a little bit about, I guess, his 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 attitudes and his feelings about being a ten year old in this organization. Oh yeah, no, he thought it was great fun because that's what it was structured to be. It was supposed to have a bunch of, of fun activities, where of course, in reality, what they were getting was paramilitary training, target practice, uh, you know. But it was made to be fun, and uh, you yeah. know, of course, with you know BB guns, I'm assuming, um, not real ammunition. Things like that, throwing grenades, but it was a field game, you know, and it was a tag game. And it was, but in reality, they were just, you know, teaching them all these things uh, marches, uh, you know, military songs, you know, but it was all made to be very, you know, fun and, yeah. and, uh, yeah, outdoor activities, sports. And so the insidious thing behind that, of course, was first of all, they were being indoctrinated without knowing it into a certain you know, way of thinking, but also uh, they were being separated from a church and parents more and more because these activities used to take place right after school, in the afternoons, and frequently so, like three times a week, and then on weekends when they were supposed to be in church. Uh, and uh, and I think you 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 actually asked me one question I didn't answer, which was when did it maybe become apparent to him that something wasn't quite one hundred percent right. And I think one of the earliest points was when uh, his father was was taking him to school and he was just dragging them along. And he uh, and my father saw, you know, heard strange noises and saw a red glow in, in the background. He he figured out much later, by the way, uh, that actually what he saw was the uh, after effects of Kristallnacht, of the night of broken glass, where you know thousands of, of Jewish businesses were destroyed and, and hundreds of synagogues were burnt. And in fact, the synagogue of the city of Witten uh, was burned to the ground and he saw it on his way to school. It was, and, and he was very shocked. So he, he realized at a level, I guess an eight-year-old can, that something just wasn't right, but he didn't know more. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so interesting to try and, you know, we're obviously so much later, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's so interesting to try and, you know, put myself in the place of an eight-year-old or, you know, a nine-year-old because, you know, to him, you know, this, the, the indoctrination, this is normal. This is all he's ever, I mean, not all he's ever known, but this has been a large part of his life. I mean, 1930, you know, it's very, that's very close to Hitler coming to power anyway. And so, you know, thinking back, you know, it's probably, it's, it probably is a challenge to know like when, when things, you know, how did you know that like something wasn't right here? But then, you know, obviously too, that, that, uh, as you just said, that very famous event, you know, Kristallnacht, even that, you know, for, for a child, it's like, oh, that, this can't be right. Uh, And I think too, like, uh, you write a little bit about how how Willie's parents, like they know that things are things are wrong, but as you mentioned, it's it could be very easy for Willie to say the wrong thing at school and and they go to jail or something like that. Talk a little bit about how how your grandparents, how Willie's parents, how did they how did they approach the topic with with Willie? How did they navigate? They basically didn't. So that's, and that's, I think, very, it was very common because of that, because of the fear and because of seeing what happened to people and neighbors who actually happened to talk about things. And uh, there was a a couple of examples. There was a a gentleman who was a a lawyer whom they knew, and that's not in the book actually, but he, he was asked to join the party. And I guess he didn't realize that wasn't just an invitation uh, that that was optional. And so he apparently even didn't even decline, said he would think about it. The next day he was dismissed and he was never able to find a job again. And then a, another neighbor, just gentleman that had a business, 
I guess, made some comment, and uh, he was actually never seen again. He lost his business. Um, people were strongly encouraged not to pursue business with him, and then uh, he disappeared. So uh, they didn't talk about it at all. In fact, when when my father started asking more questions, uh, because they, they actually were acquainted with a Jewish family, and uh, he used to go there to get, you know, my mother, my grandmother and, and the lady were friends. And, and my grandmother used to take my father there to, for the lady to babysit him. And uh, she had, the lady had a young child who was younger than my father. And, and they played. And, and then suddenly he just realized he didn't, you know, he wasn't seeing them. He wasn't going there anymore. Um, and he uh, was asking questions and they simply shut him down. It's like, yeah, don't ask stupid questions, you know. Well, what about the star? Yeah, well, you know, that's that's to know they're Jews. And he asked, well, why? And he's like, yeah, just shut up and just don't ask questions. Right? So it's yeah. very, very sad. Now, in the end, that family actually that's, you know, reappears in the book, of course. Actually, my grandmother ended up helping the family and actually hid the lady and her son at the very end of the war because they took the gentleman to Theresienstadt, to, to, the, to the concentration camp in, in Theresienstadt. And he, he survived, though, um, luckily, and, and came back, which was extraordinary. But they, they had lost all, all means of survival. And, and then at the end, of, so in '45, it became so that she would have been deported as well uh, with the child, even though she was German. So the reason she hadn't actually been taken to the concentration camp was because she was German and the child was considered a, you know, this is a terrible word, but, you know, a bastard. Um, it was horrible. And so she had no way of surviving. Uh, but she wasn't taken because she was German. She had refused to divorce her Jewish husband, which was then basically you were forced to do that. She refused. And then she became an outcast. And in 45, though, they would have taken her because the, the war had become desperate and, um, yeah. and it was victory or death. And uh, there was the final solution, you know, and so there, weren't, there was no more tolerance for anything. Uh, and it became just savage. And so she, uh, my grandmother, hid her in the coal cellar. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I really, you get through your book desperation is um, at the beginning, the chapters leading up to when your, your father is forced into the Hitler youth, you know, it, it's a slow buildup and you feel the desperation. Uh, and especially, you know, he's a child soldier. Um, what kind of country sends their children, you know, to war, uh, a desperate, you know, a very desperate uh, regime. Talk a little bit about, uh, so the war has started and I, this is something that I learned that children, when the when the Allies started bombing German cities, the children were at first encouraged to to leave, or families were encouraged to send their children off into the countryside, and I think later forced. Talk about that. Um, what? How yeah, did that, how did that happen? Yeah, that is one of the more the most you know sort of twisted um, parts of 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 how the regime managed to to manipulate, uh, you know, the, the population. In 1943, in, uh, this, this program caught up with my father. So the program was called Kinderland Verschickung KLV, uh, and it stands for, you know, Children's Relocation Program. And uh, it was touted as a, uh, you know, almost like a vacation and, and uh, as protection against Allied bombing for the children. So uh, the Nazi regime was um, uh, encouraging parents to do this. This was a voluntary program, allegedly, where, you know, parents would surely want their children to be safe from Allied bombing. So these are city, mostly city children, right? And this, this, this program was, uh, was, um, was for city children. And, you know, they would take the children away from the influence of the parents and the church, of course, because that was the ultimate design for this program, not a vacation. Uh, 
and these and the boys in particular were to receive actual military training to then be put in into action as if and as necessary and it, it and they deemed it to be necessary in 1945 to send my father who then had, was just 14 uh, in March 1945, at the very end of the war, to the Eastern Front, which was actually in Austria at the time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and your, so your grandparents resist this a little bit in the beginning because, you know, they don't want it. It's their only son, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, they don't want to send their, their child off. Uh, but the pressure from the community um, is it's so intense that uh, I think that eventually they, they more or less have no choice. I'm remembering that right. That's exactly right. So the program was voluntary. However, it was mandatory to, by law to enroll children in school. Right? Children had to get, receive schooling. So in Nordrhein-Westfalen, they closed the schools whereby parents would be in violation of the law for not sending their children to school. Well, they couldn't. The only way they could send their children to school was to enroll them in the program and have them removed from their homes. And that's, yeah. that's how the voluntary program actually worked, right? So yes, I mean, they had nothing back then was a choice. You know, it was basically... You know, as we saw the obliteration of free will, right, and so and applied in slow in slow doses, and then accelerating. You know, in the war. So, how did your father? At so he's thirteen at this point when he gets sent to this. I think at thirteen at this point when he gets sent off um, near Austria. How did he feel about? So he got um, sent to sent to the program in at age thirteen and got sent to the border with uh, Switzerland. Again, that's 43. So allegedly, again, to be protected from bombing and to receive better schooling, which of course didn't happen. But that was the, I guess, the excuse. And so he, he was with the host family who, of course, that was mandatory for host families to host these children. That was also not a choice. They were just placed. This family that he was with was actually very kind, but they had nine children, uh, I think, altogether, if I recollect. Um, yeah, nine. And so, and, and they were very hungry. So there was, there was actually, a, a, by 1943, you know, the war had really, you know, damaged, uh, you know, the infrastructure of Germany severely, and there was no food. And so they were starting to, to, to experience pretty severe issues. Um, yeah. And so, and then afterwards, in 44, he was then uh, sent to a remote village in the mountains because the, uh, there started to be a mass exodus from the east to the west of uh, civilians mostly uh, actually fleeing the Russians and coming into droves into that region. So they were removed in 44. In 44 then, oh, I forgot to mention, so they were removed in, in sort of in, in groups, right? These children were taken as, as, as a whole like class. So the, you know, with all school classmates and teachers. So the whole class was taken and there was a Nazi handler. So the Nazi handler was there to do surveillance on the teachers and the children at all times, right? And so they then all get shipped off to this remote village and then the SS showed up. Um, to yeah, you, to pick out the 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 good candidates for being thrown um, to into war, uh, and so they picked the, the the taller you know larger kids uh, that uh, my father unfortunately was part of. Uh, so there were three in his class, actually only three that were picked, and he was one of them um, because he was you know considered to be strong enough. 
And you write too a little bit about how they he Willie he couldn't return home. Um, there were, I guess, Hitler youth, you know, older watchers maybe who would make sure. So, for example, you you write about a scene in your book where your grandparents they send a train ticket, I believe, for Willie to come home for Christmas, and um, Willie has to sneak home. Talk a little bit about that that scene and 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 why that was happening. Yeah. So it, once removed, the children were actually not allowed to you know to return home. The parents could visit. But that became very difficult, of course, because actually uh, the entire rail system was was getting pretty deteriorated. And so, you know, the whole thing was 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 really meant to to permanently separate the, the kids from their parents. And um, and this this train ticket shows up uh, because my grandfather worked for the German railways. It, but it was very naive, I think, on their part, I believe that my grandfather thought, and that's when my father's belief was, thinking back on it later, that that my grandfather thought that it that he my father could do this, that he could get on a train and come home for Christmas, which of course was not allowed. And so he basically, yeah, he had to he had to sneak into the train. You know, he was he was desperately homesick, so he you know, and, and he was 13 and a half and and he just he uh, he actually with the help of the host family Took a huge risk, by the way, because the Coast family could have been punished for this, and and got on a train and actually did make it home for Christmas, and then upon his return was of course punished by by the the Nazi regime, by the Hitler Youth who picked him right out of the train as he as he returned home because by then they'd figured out that he was missing, and they were checking every every train that that was returning from that region. Well, what was it? What what were the conditions like? So, nineteen forty five is when your your father is forced into the war. In that that time, where leading right up to to nineteen forty five, what were the conditions like for him in this um, this Hitler Youth kind of? I don't. I'm not sure what you want to call it, but maybe compound that he's yeah. been forced to live on. Yeah, it was, yeah, basically compound would be a good word for it. At this point, they're completely isolated. Um, there is no connection to the outside world. There's communications are, you know, basically destroyed. Um, there is no food. So they were, you know, they were re- literally starving. I mean, they, they were resorting to eating, I think, beets is all they had left. And and so they were, the, the children were uh, very, very scared, very hungry, the the SS showed up. Um, you know, I remember my father just at the time, uh, sort of describing them as incredibly creepy. And the kids were at the time they were, they they were stealing food wherever they could because they you know it was it, it was survival and uh, and also I think as as kids you know they thought you know it was kind of maybe a, a fun prank to go and, you know, steal some food from the butcher. I guess the local butcher had some food in the cellar, you know, whatever provisions they had left. Uh, and they would uh, regularly, uh, you know, sneak in and steal some food because they were so hungry. And unfortunately, when the SS uh, showed up and, and they had a, a depot with, with food, uh, a, a one kid snuck in to the SS depot and stole food there and unfortunately, he he was caught by the SS, and uh, stealing from the SS was punishable by death. And it didn't matter how old you were. And so this fourteen-year-old was executed by the SS to make an example out of him. And the children, including my father, were made to watch the execution. I remember reading that, and, and that, that was something was, that yeah that woke yeah. him up at night um, for many years. Sure. You know. It was, uh, nightmares. Yeah. And I, I remember reading about how even like there were people who were not in the SS who were, who were pleading like, you know, don't do this. You know, you've got to be, you have to be out of your mind or whatever, but this is, you know, almost, almost the end of the war at this point. We're almost in 1945 and the SS is like, no, like stealing 
food is like stealing from Hitler himself or something like that and show no mercy no and mercy. just have parade everyone out. Actually, I don't think it was everyone. I think it was the, the older children were, were paraded out. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, and they're like, you've got to watch. And this kid is just lined up and, and shot in front of them all. Yeah. And I thought, oh, gosh, that was one of the scenes that really stuck out to me in the book. Yeah. Yeah, the ruthlessness, right, of of the regime became apparent at this point. Yeah. Talk talk a little bit about then um, your father becoming a soldier. How did that happen, and in what activities was he expected to perform? So three of three of the kids in the class got picked out, including my father. The SS gave them. A and how choice. old is he at this time? He is, uh, he's 14. He's, he's, okay. he's turned 14. And so they're given a choice of, no, at first they're given training. So they're just sent to training. They're sent to training. It's a two-month training camp that they're going to, and that is military training. So that's outright, you know, they are being taught to use uh, the weapons that they, were, that they will be, that they will be using. Uh, that includes the Panzerfaust, which is like a bazooka. Um, it's a. It can only be for that. Well, that that Panzerfaust could only be fired once. It was a one-time, um, you know, weapon, and it, it would penetrate the hull of a tank and explode inside. Um, and uh, they were also taught how to use the uh, the the machine gun, which was allegedly one of the first machine guns that was, uh, you know, they would shoot uh, true at like a thousand meters. So it was very revolutionary at the time. And the handgun. So they were they were they were taught to use these weapons uh, for two months, and then they were sent back to this this school camp, just basically waiting to for to be engaged in, in the war. And and of course that happened. Right. So in 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 March of of forty five, the SS then came knocking and said, "All right, it's time." And they gave him a choice. They said, you can uh, come with us with the SS. And they promised him, you know, warm food and warm beds. And or uh, they could choose to go to the regular army. Uh, so uh, all three of them immediately chose the army because they were uh, very, they were very apprehensive of the SS, even obviously knowing how they acted. So they wanted to get away from the SS and, um, and join the army. And they were immediately shipped out um, that day, I think. And it was, I believe, it was the 18th of March, or the 18th or the 19th. And I remember that because my father's village got raised to the ground on that day. And he didn't know it until much later, until he finally made it home. Yeah, he hadn't been able to communicate with his family for, for a long time. So he, he had no idea, right? Right. No, he, he had no clue. Um, it, what had happened to his parents and uh and so then he got shipped off to the front and so what was hit when he was on the front what was what was that like for him I, I know you mentioned that he's basically got a bazooka that he's firing at tanks you know what is he treated as a normal soldier what what are the types of things that are expected from him yep they had these three 14 year olds they might have been truly the youngest generation to be in that war because allegedly they would take only the 16 year olds um and and this and and of course it was the, that final the Volkssturm that that was another is it was a movement right that the Volkssturm would, would engage the young the younger kids and the and the old men 60 and, and and up into this war effort my father was an exception not because he was the youngest my father and his two classmates but also because he was engaged in the regular army so he wasn't a paramilitary unit he was in an actual army unit and so i made it a i guess more dramatic and more much more dangerous because he was actually shipped to the front he was they were uh treated like any other soldier um there's no difference and uh, they were uh in his first battle he was outfitted with four of these bazookas and and of course uh if you ran out of those four good luck because they could only be fired once, and you know each of them could take out one tank. And then they had the the machine gun and the 
and the handgun. And, um, and so in, uh, his first battle was, uh, we don't know the exact date, but it was either March 31st or April 1st. So really toward the end of the war. And the battle he was actually in was incredibly important, but he had no idea, of course, until he pieced it all together much later, because it was the last battle before the Battle of Vienna. So it was the last sort of bastion of you know defense of the Germans in the, the city of Wiener Neustadt, which is just south of Vienna, uh, trying to stave off the advance of the uh, then the Ukrainian uh, second and third armies, I think, and they were defeated in that battle. My father almost died, and then they went into retreat. Yeah, if I remember right, uh, he was actually bayoneted, right? He was in his leg uh, yes. and um, lived the rest of his life. You write it towards the end with like those wounds, and um, I think even. Even later after the war, he he had some wounds. How did your father feel at the time? You know, he's fourteen. I, you know, he's to be a soldier. You know, is you know something that you know, it it's a proud thing. You know, you're 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 fighting for your country, and of course, at the time, he didn't realize that that Germany one was losing, but also two that. That nobody knew the atrocities, the extent of the atrocities. But how did how did he feel about being a soldier? He was well. It was no doubt absolutely terrifying. Um, but at the same time, yes. So his belief, because that's what he'd been told his whole life, was that he was defending his his home country. Right? He was defending his 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 homeland against invasion by the Russians. That that was what he knew, right? That's what he was being told. And they were also being told, of course, that they were winning the war and that they were superior and that they would, you know, prevail. And uh, and that was the narrative. And so he was there to proudly defend his fatherland and, and sacrifice his life for the Fuhrer because that's what he was being told to do. And that's what he believed he was doing. He was He was thinking that he was defending you know, his, his country. So at, at what point did it become apparent that Germany was not winning the war? Well, I did. So uh, I think pretty quickly, right. Um, so at, at, uh, at the time that, you know, this, this uh, battle, you know, um, you know, unfolded and, they, you know, they were pushed into, into desperate retreat, uh, you know, it, it dawned, it dawned on them that, you know, they'd lost most of their unit. They were just, you know they were, they had a, they engaged in a few more battles. Uh, they actually got uh, awarded. My father got awarded the the Iron Cross with the rest of what was left of his unit. Uh, you know, I think in an attempt to you know boost morale, etc. Even though clearly, you know, this was I mean we're talking April now, uh, and they continued to retreat uh, in in. What they found out was this was not being spoken about, but what they found out they were doing is they were trying to get to the demarcation line that the leaders of the unit had somehow intercepted in, a, in some radio, I guess, communication, I'm assuming, that, yes, they were losing the war and that there was going to be obviously a takeover and there was going, it, the, the country was going to be divided into a, a, a Russian side and an American side. And uh, if they had any hopes of survival, they needed to make it to the American side as quickly as possible. And so they, the rumors were that, you know, the demarcation line uh, between what, what was going to be the Russian controlled area and the American controlled area was known to be in the, in the city of Lietzen in Austria separated by a river and north of the river was going to be the American side and, and south was going to be the Russian side. So that's what they were desperately trying to get to. And uh, on the way, something that I, I was struck by was the SS trying, like they were, they were going around and well, uh, I keep, I, I'm I'm like trying to say what's in your book, but why don't you say what was yeah. the SS doing um, with these these fleeing soldiers? So as part of this final, you know, solution and Folkstrom, etc., 
the uh, again, there was no such thing as surrendering to the enemy. So Hitler had made it clear that uh, it was it was victory or death. So n- nobody was basically going to survive this if if he had a hand in it. And so the what the SS uh, was doing, they were collecting any any soldiers, any German soldiers who might be lost or or maybe just simply separated from the units. And they would immediately label them deserters and and kill them. And so as as the rest of the unit of, of my father with their, you know, who was left in charge as a lieutenant, were, were making it back, uh, they got through this village where they saw a, a German soldier hanging from a tree and they realized what was going on. And they actually almost like basically ran into the SS, two, two SS men who had just gotten hold of, of, uh, of a young soldier who obviously must have been lost. And it was, you know, pretty obvious that they were, they were going to kill him. They were going to hang him as well. And, um, and so uh, the lieutenant and, and the five, six, seven soldiers that were there, uh, including my father, ambushed the SS and killed them. And so saved the soldier's life. Yeah, I, I remember reading that uh, and thinking that was that was pretty incredible. So your your father eventually does, you know, he makes it. He surrenders with his his unit to the Allies, and then uh, then he's put in captivity. Talk uh, talk about his time in captivity. Yeah, that's that's actually a very interesting situation because you know they do make it to the to the American side of the demarcation line. Unbeknownst to them, they actually crossed that river to the American side on the day that Germany surrenders. They did not know this, of course. They had no communication, or at least not well, and not, they didn't know it uh, at that point. So my father then, you know, uh, actually the, the next day, they're, they're doing military drills. So again, they don't know. The war is over. And my father accidentally runs into Americans who have in fact made it there and, and they're in a Jeep and he's in full gear and they are too. And they just basically just, you know, look at each other. My father was kind of, you know, frozen. They were frozen for a minute. Uh, and the American Jeep just turned around and left. And my father was flabbergasted, went back running to his lieutenant um, because at this point he knew we were looking for the Americans. He goes, well, the Americans are here. The Americans are here. And that's when he he, the lieutenant tells him, Longbine, we've just heard the, the war is over. And so then it made sense, of course, that's why the Americans left and didn't engage because, you know, it was at the permanent, uh, permanently, uh, you know, ceasefire uh, was permanent because the war was over. And um, then they were taken, yes, they were, were they basically agreed to be taken prisoner. Um, and um, they weren't prisoners of war because the war was over. They were interned persons, and so we're in, they were in this, you know, weird situation um, that was sort of undetermined, uh, an undetermined status, and uh, so they didn't quite know what to do with them, and so they eventually triaged them. I mean, they were they were clearly treated like prisoners, so they were in this open camp, and it, they weren't even. I mean, it was open field; there weren't even any barracks per se. And they were held there uh, for some time until they figured out what to do with them, and which was basically triage them, uh, the vast majority of them to be sent to uh, actually to France to to sweep minefields and to work in mines. And those those uh, soldiers didn't come back until like forty seven or forty eight. When did when did your father eventually return to Germany? So he actually, uh, when the triage was happening, I think that was really a stroke of genius on his side. He was really smart uh, to figure that out. He saw that there were basically being separated when they were being triaged out uh, into two lines, and one line was longer than the other. And the shorter line, uh, he, he overheard that they were asking the soldiers what their peacetime occupation was. And he noticed that the ones that said farmer 
was getting were going get, getting sent to the shorter line, and he accurately suspected that those folks probably were going to get sent home because they they needed to till the land and, and food was was needed, and the rest you know probably wasn't going to send home be sent home. And he he played his cards right. You know, he took a huge gamble, and when they asked him what he what his peacetime occupation was, he said he was a student and a farmer. And indeed, you know, that, that did work out for him because he was sent home after that. Well, uh, Heidi, this has been a, a really, uh, it's an, been an incredible interview. Your book, like I said, I enjoyed it so much. My kind of last question here, what do you hope people take away from this story? You know, I, I hope they take away from this story, again, a reminder of, of, of the just uh, destruction uh, that is wrought by authoritarian regimes uh, where, you know, people no longer have free will. And and it and it destroys you know authoritarian regimes destroy their own country not just others right and uh, and also the legacy of my father, who when he figured out finally pieced it all together, and got out of his depression, um, he decided he was going to do something about it, and he did right he he dedicated the rest of his life his career to furthering democracy um, in the world. Yeah. That's really incredible, and I'm so glad that you you shared his story, and I'm so glad that you know his story was recorded, and and you know I hope lots of people read it uh, because I I really I thought it was a I mean it, it it was a good book, but it was a very timely book to to read as maybe a reminder of how how wrong it can go. Yeah, sadly, sadly, very yeah. timely as we see with uh, you know uh, the Ukraine and and Russia, unfortunately, yeah. right now, where children are being indoctrinated right this very this very moment you know it's it's happening again so yeah sadly yeah well uh, heidi where can folks find you if they want to find you are you on social media yeah i i am uh, i'm on social media i have a website heidi langbeinauthor.com my book save the last bullet is available at uh you know bookstores and Barnes and Noble, Warwick's here locally in, in, in San Diego, nationwide, actually worldwide, uh, also through Amazon. Um, so you can Great. you can find the book uh, wherever books are sold, really. Uh, it can be ordered. Wonderful. Perfect. Well, Heidi Lingvine Allen, Allen, Heidi Lingvine <laughs> Allen, <laughs> Save the Last Bullet, Memoir of a Boy Soldier in Hitler's Army. Go pick up a copy. Go check it out from your library. Give it a read in Heidi. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.